Welcome uh, to this edition of the Journal of African History podcast. My name is Moses Ochonu, and I'll be talking today with uh, uh, Khalid, Dr. Khalid Asaisa, who is um, an assistant teaching professor at the African Studies Program in Georgetown University. You're welcome, Khalid. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure to be with you. Yes. So uh, the way that this works is that, you know, we ask a few questions regarding, uh, you know, your article that appears in the current edition of the Journal of African History. And you've, uh, we thank you for generously agreeing to uh, partake in this conversation. So this is, this is a conversation that will help the audience understand the context and the contributions of your article much better. So without further ado, I want to get right to it. Uh, you know, the, your article is titled Enslaved Muslim Sufi Saints in the 19th Century Sahara, the Life of Bilal Ud Mahmoud. And it appears in the current uh, issue of the Journal of African History, as I previously stated. Uh, my question to you is, um, how did you come up with this uh, topic, with the topic of this research? Is this, is this yeah. paper part of a larger ongoing project, or is it uh, a standalone article, uh, a one-off? Yeah, great. Uh, again, thanks for having me. Um, so, uh, you know, first of all, I think that's, a, you know, a question that requires two answers. Uh, first of all, I am a, I'm a member of the Haratin community and the Haratin communities, um, you know, uh, are often defined as enslaved people and descendant of enslaved people in Mauritania. But I analyze them as a social categories that really include freeborn people. And I can talk more, more about that later. But I'm a member of that Hamaharadin community, and I come originally from Mauritania. So that's my first interest in this whole history of uh, Bilal ul Mahmoud, but also, you know, the, the larger Haratin community. But I am also, uh, I, I come to this uh, project because of, as I said, my interest of the Haratin community, uh, but also my interest emerges out of kind of frustration of the way in which the Haratin communities have been portrayed and studied. Often the emphasis is on slavery and even this is not only even among the intellectual community and scholars and historians who have studied the Haratin community, but also even within Mauritania, when people talk about Haratin, there seems to be an emphasis on uh, slavery. And so there is this kind of association. Whenever we talk about the Haratin, we're talking about slavery. So that kind of frustration for me that to study Haratin community, yes, slavery is part of their heritage. It's a part of the Haratin uh, past, but we cannot limit the history of the Haratin community to just slavery. So I look at the what I call the initiatives of Haratin uh, Muslims, in, and that's looking at their historical, intellectual, social initiatives to assert themselves as free-born and free individuals and part of really uh, a Muslim society. So I say this to say that this is article is part of a larger project, really, of uh, that I'm looking at 19th century and 20th century Mauritania, where I focus on the history of the Haratin community and Haratin peoples. Mm-hmm. Well, thanks for that. I mean, that's that's very insightful. Uh, you, your, your article, I should say, succeeds in moving the conversation away from the obsession with slavery and in, you know, centering it on the humanity 
of this, uh, this, this subject that you are dealing with, certainly the culture that he embodies. So that's, uh, that's fantastic. Well, um, so along those lines then, uh, can I ask you what the central arguments and the historiographical contributions of this article are? You know, yeah. uh, we're always talking as historians about the gaps, the historiographical gaps that a piece of work fills. So I'd like you to speak to that. Uh, what's the big takeaway for historians who are interested in the broad topics of Islam, slavery, and Sufism in West Africa? Excellent. So uh, this article um, is very important. It focuses on a specific individual, and that's uh, a man named Bilal al-Mahmoud, who was born enslaved, grew up as an enslaved person, but managed to gain his freedom and really become a an icon of Muslim dignity in 19th century Sahara and uh, what is today Mauritania, specifically what is today the country of Mauritania. So in terms of the article's argument and contribution to existing scholarship, um, the article offers a fresh perspective on a range of crucial historical issues relating to Sufism, slavery, um, but also social hierarchy and race. Hmm. So... This is, I try to use the story of Bilal. This is a kind of a story of individual who is really prominent uh, and today is still very much uh, remembered uh, in Mauritania where his shrine, uh, people visit his shrine for blessing and to gain, you know, you know, as a Sufi saint for protection and blessing. So I try to use his story to make really two important interventions. One is I argue that, you know, Bilal's story kind of generate a new set of questions about Sufi tradition and Sufi practices. Here, is, here, here was an enslaved man who became a religious authority, uh, but he became a religious authority without being attached to a Sufi order. Um, and this is very important because most of the existing literature that looks at Sufism in, um, I would say, 19th century, 18th century, even 19th century West Africa in general, not only Mauritania, uh, ten scholars tend to focus on what is called al-Mu'assasatiyah, uh, or institutionalized Sufism, or tariqa, Sufi orders. Uh, for instance, Qadiriyya, Tijaniyya, and Muridiyya. Uh, these are some of the prominent Sufi orders, and Shadiriyya. So, and these tend to, the scholars, these tend to be dominated by men, mostly men, although there is, you know, an emerging scholarship that challenges that, uh, focus on women. But the focus has been on men and men who come from uh, well-known, prestigious scholarly families. Uh, so there is, you know, that's in terms of the, you know, the, the, the scholarship that exists. Uh, there is, you know, there is, and, and the story of Bilal really challenges that. This is a, an individual who become really prominent. Number one, he, come, he doesn't come from these well-known families. But also he become a prominent Sufi leader, Sheikh, without being attached to any Sufi orders. And that's really critical and important because we're looking at Sufism outside the tariqa, what is called the tasawwuf al-vardi, or individualized Sufism. Very few studies uh, have looked at that in the context of Africa, in the African continent, uh, especially, you know, in West Africa. Mostly those studies are focusing on the contemporary context. Uh, so scholars like Benjamin Suarez, and others who have looked at this in the contemporary context, looking at the Sufism outside uh, the tariqa. But really, this is the story of Bilal. It really brings something fresh and new in this context. 
that looking at you know this kind of Sufism, individual Sufism in 19th century uh, Sahara, where it was really dominated at that time by Sufi tariqa. So that's 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 one contribution. The second contribution related to the question of you know agency and enslaved people uh, agency and looking here at you know in the conventional, for example, literature. You know when you look at it, when we study, and I mentioned this in the introduction, that enslaved people were not considered to be people with culture and people who were educated and who contributed well-versed in Islamic sciences or esoteric sciences. Uh, they were not considered known as for talisman or spiritual powers. Uh, and, and especially in this period, you know, we're looking at the, and it's still even today, enslaved people as often accused of what is called the black magic or a seher, um, the practice of illicit magic. Um, and and, and be really Bilal's story challenges that again. You know, here it goes against all these ideas that enslaved people were not capable, enslaved Muslims were not capable of culture. They were not pious Muslims. Here we have, again, an enslaved uh, man who become really a celebrity and to whom many prominent Saharan scholars and elite uh, were drawn to. And they recognized him as a Sufi leader, as, a, as an important uh, uh, saint authority, saintly authority. So this story really forces us to think of the experience of Saharan Muslims uh, beyond the practice of illicit magic, uh, but understand them as you know, people who had agency, people who had culture, people who contributed to, you know, to Sufi traditions and exercised their authority in, in, in that sense. Thank you, uh, Khalid. Very well put. I think your portrayal of uh, Bilal definitely shows him uh, as a complex subject, as a, so someone who reached, who lived a life that was um, very rich and complex. Uh, someone whose uh, life, obviously, and accomplishments transcended his enslaved status. And someone who acquired authority and recognition and prominence that belie his uh, status as an, as an enslaved person. So that's, that comes through uh, powerfully in the article. I want to uh, talk a little bit uh, along those lines because uh, it mustn't have been so easy to reconstruct the life of this person who was enslaved, who was not part of, like you said, of the Sufi mainstream, didn't uh, come from one of the prominent scholarly families, and certainly didn't have a pedigree that you know, that one could uh, predict would lead to his current status. So uh, reconstructing such a life must have been methodologically, must have presented some issues. So I'm particularly fascinated by your use of oral sources, right? The oral stories and traditions that you use, you know, obviously they are not dated. You know, the question of dating and chronology, they come, you know, oral sources generally, they come with their own problems. Um, so, I mean, how did you, this, these stories and traditions have been circulating, as you say in the article, since the 19th century. How did you use these uh, circulating stories, oral stories, uh, to reconstruct the life of Bilal, you know, the central subject of this article? Yeah, excellent. That's, you know, that's a really an excellent question. Um, and, and, and yeah, you're right. I mean, you know, it's very challenging. And it was very challenging for me to, you know, uh, you know number one, collect you know, materials on these individuals, but also, you know, uh, use those, in you know, sources, uh, you know, uh, um, 
so it's challenging reconstructing in general, you know, marginalizing individuals like Bilal, because the evidence is often fragmentary. And since not all information, I think, is available on, on, on his story. Uh, so, you know, those of us who work on enslaved people, especially in this part of the world, it's really difficult to get a hand on materials. These are people who most of the time um, did not leave records of their own, right? Um, most of the time they couldn't write and they couldn't read. Um, and, and, and people who wrote, they were not paying attention to these people because these people were not really important because they were not part of the elite. So that was very, very difficult. And, you know, when I, when I, when I decided to write about Bilal, I, I decided to pay attention to, um, Sources that people, I think other people have not paid attention to and have not have overlooked, I believe, or, you know, they ignored. Uh, and so I pay attention to most notably songs, proverbs, and poetry, poetry in Arabic, but also mostly in Hassania. And Hassania is a dialect of Arabic, including Berber and African loan words. And this is the language that Bilal spoke. Bilal composed poetry in Hassania, and he composed it in Arabic, although this is a part of the, you know, the fascination of his character. It's like somebody who could not read, and this is part of his, why he emerged as a saintly authority, and the people recognized him, because he did things that were out of, you know, not ordinary, miracles. So he composed poetry in Arabic, but also in Hassania. So I look at those, you know, songs, and I look at those proverbs and poetry, uh, there was also people who composed poetry, you know, pose, composed verses to praise Bilal's character, to praise his emergence and his piety. So I looked at those and examined those kind of sources. Uh, and then I conducted interviews. And, and that's really how I came about. And then, then you know, there are also, you know, uh, written sources, especially in Arabic, you know, written documents in Arabic from the 19th century, the period in, in which Bilal lived. Um, you know, that I can talk about those later that I put together and that's how I came, you know, I put all of those sources together to corroborate oral and written sources to corroborate each other and then to, to allow me to reconstruct uh, the, his story. That's fascinating. Uh, and that's, that's a perfect segue to my next question. Um, you sort of brought it up, uh, the nexus or the intersection of oral and written sources. Because it seems like you had to deal with uh, fragmentary sources, whether these sources were oral or written. Um, it seems like you were more or less piecing these sources together from eclectic sources and venues. Some of them were written and some of them were oral, or oral compositions that, uh, that, have, that, that have made their way to text. So how did you reconcile the written and the oral, and how did you manage to somehow get them to get these two sources to speak to one to, to each other to reconstruct the life of this fascinating uh, personality this saintly yeah. figure yeah excellent yeah no again that's a that's really a great question um yeah so the the written material that i look at i look at uh, you know as i said this is 19th century document that were written um one of them really get one of the most significant source on the history of Mauritania. It's a, a document called uh, Al Wasit. Uh, the, the book is Al Wasit Vitarajimi uh, Shankit, and and written by this figure uh, Ahmed ibn Al Amin Shankiti, uh, who in this document became really important. You know, considered one of the main texts 
uh, scholars have used it to, you know, glean information about Mauritanian history in general, but also glean information about, you know, slavery and witchcraft uh, during this period. And in that book, the author talks, you know, mentions something about Bilal. Doesn't go into details. Again, Bilal, you know, the author, from the perspective of the author, I think Bilal was not really that important figure, but he mentioned something about Bilal. So I use that. And then the other important document that I use also written by an important figure during around the same time. And this figure actually provides more information because this figure knew Bilal, uh, mentioned Bilal, actually prayed behind Bilal, recognized Bilal, although he expresses some hesitancy uh, at the beginning before you know recognizing, and, and this is all written, this is an unpublished manuscript, before actually recognizing Bilal. So, so these are the sources that I had to look at um, and then use the um, oral sources that I've just mentioned to corroborate uh, all these evidences to allow me to reconstruct his, his, his story. Hmm. Uh, thank you. Uh, briefly, uh, Khalid, uh, for the benefit of you know, historians uh, and colleagues who are interested in uh, methodological issues and the kinds of methodological questions that, uh, that often come up in our craft as historians, what 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 kinds of methodological challenges did you encounter in trying to reconstruct the life of this uh, saintly figure, uh, Sufi figure, and how did you overcome them? I guess would be the uh, so I, I would say you know in terms of the challenges, you know there are a lot of challenges. You know uh, I would say the first really challenge for me that I faced in terms of really conducting this research is uh, the fact that I'm working on this figure, but the, the fact that I'm working in a in in, in Mauritania context. And, and and also the issue of slavery is still very uh, present and the legacy of slavery. So it's really a sensitive topic, uh, you know, in, even in going to the archive, there are challenges even accessing the archive, uh, talking to people because you always, and also I come as a member of this community, uh, people always perceive you as trying to, you know, to, you know, really challenge the status quo or really, do something that is challenging the status quo or, you know, writing a kind of history that people don't want to, don't want it to be written. So, so that's, that's kind of really difficult collecting, going just about doing the research on the ground talking to people, uh, collecting information. It was really difficult because this is again, a sensitive topic, still sensitive topic to talk about. Although I'm not, I'm not studying slavery but that's what people think is I'm really focusing on slavery, studying slavery. And also, you know, this history is still, you know, uh, the stigma of the past and people who have lived this history, it, it still shapes the present and the legacy of slavery, which is something that is really, you know, very prevalent in Mauritania and the discussion about Mauritania. All of these are challenges that I had to deal with. But at the same time, you know, I I would say, you know, um, I also was very fortunate to have people who were willing uh, to help and provide information. And, and, and so, so even conducting interviews was very challenging, again, because even people who are, you know, descendants of enslaved people, a lot of them still don't want to talk about that past because, again, of the stigma of, uh, you know, of the past, of slavery. So these are things that I had to, you know, it, it took me a long time, you know, 
to collect this information and convince people that, you know, the work that I'm doing is important and I'm still dealing with some of these issues. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, thank, thank you. I mean, obviously, you know, he, the, the subject of your article lived such a, such a complex life, you know, that his life, as you argue in the article, you know, compels us in some ways to ask new questions about the processes of enslavement in the Sahel, in the Sahara, and in probably all of West Africa. You know, uh, we need to ask, pose new questions, but also challenge old questions about slavery. So I'm, 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 I'm curious, uh, what, what, what then would you say are the unique features of slavery in this part of Africa that Bilal's story uh, embodies or highlights? Yeah, that's an excellent question, right? Uh, and the question also, uh, you know, I would say this, and then, uh, so I would say that uh, in, in Mauritania, right? Mauritania, which is, you know, the, the setting uh, and, and, and the place we're talking about here, you know, the attention that it gets in the media, it's all about, I would say, slavery and, mm -hmm. and, and the existence of slavery and the endurance of the practice. You know, it gets from international media organizations and, you know, and, and celebrities and whatever. And it's, it's really, you know, it's very difficult question to answer in a way because you're talking about a practice that has existed for centuries. But really, you know, it's, you know, if we're talking about the definition of slavery, the top form of slavery that existed in Mauritania, I would say, you know, slavery, number one, slavery existed in both communities. So Mauritanian society is composed of what is called the Bilan, you know, the, it's a mix of Arab and Berber communities. Um, and then you have none, uh, and they are often defined as white. Bilan means white. So these people, they define themselves as white. But you have also other groups, uh, non-Arabophone groups, and this is include, for example, the Wolof uh, communities, the Halpulan communities, the Suniki communities. Slavery existed in both communities, in the Arabophone communities, in the non-Arabophone communities. Now, the attention gets, the Mauritania gets, it's always focused on the Arabophone uh, and slavery, ex how existence of slavery in the Arabophone, even in from international, from journalists and reporters, and also from, you know, scholars, uh, which is, you know, a problem. Now, when we talk about the kind of slavery that existed, I would say within the Arabophone communities, the type of slavery that existed is something close to, you know, the classical definition of slavery. It would be chattel slavery. Enslaved people were, you know, owned. They were owned as property. Uh, but it's also more complex than that. And that's where it comes, the complexity of social relations and the role of religion, the role of Islam, and Islamic principles in terms of governing slavery, uh, and especially in the aftermath of slavery when people become, you know, get their freedom. There is this concept of al-wala, which is uh, close to, um, can be translated as client patronage. Uh, so all these things are complex. Yes, that form of chattel slavery existed in Mauritania, but it's more complex than that, uh, because there was also, you know, slavery that existed of slavery as a social institution. And this was not only unique to uh, Mauritania, it was not unique to the Arabophone. It's existed in other Mauritanian communities uh, where enslaved people had rights and had social obligations, had rights, and they were part of the king uh, system. They were part of... So it's... It, it's uh, it's a kind of very complex when we're talking about slavery. And that's part of the difficulty 
that a lot of, I think, uh, journalists, uh, you know, Western journalists, when they come to Mauritania, talk about slavery. Mauritania, as I said, is known as, you know, slavery last stronghold. There was a documentary by CNN that was, you know, done in few, you know, I think 12, 2012. And, you know, the reporter, you know, did that documentary that, you know, called Mauritania slave, slavery last stronghold. But but the issue with that is the the journalists and, and, and the reporters, sometimes they don't get the complexity of these social relations. Uh, and, and sometimes, you know, they look at, for example, uh, exploitation, labor exploitation, um, look at the social inequality and economic inequality and tie that with dark-skinned people, uh, and then they, they label that slavery or something akin to slavery. Well, it's more complex than that, I think. That's a long answer. And <laughs> so, no, no, that's a fascinating answer, to be honest. Yeah. I mean, it's quite, uh, quite, quite insightful. And, you know, I think, you know, what you show in this article is that, you know, using Bilal as an entry point into this complex landscape of, uh, of slavery, but also of uh, Sufi scholarship, of sainthood, of uh, miracles and religious authority, uh, is that there are all kinds of arrangements and, and uh, in Mauritanian society, historically, all kinds of arrangements in the religious terrain. Uh, there are ways in which an enslaved person might use the resources of piety and uh, miracles and, and, and you know, saintly uh, character and attribute to acquire new pathways through life and so on and so forth. And that should be part of the discussion of, uh, that should be part of the literature and the discussion. And I think the large story, what it does ultimately is to challenge and to disrupt the journal these journalistic portrayals that you are talking about. So I guess my final question to you would then would be, how do you want scholars, but not just scholars, journalists and um, members of the public, you know, how, how would you want uh, them to see Bilal's story in the broader context of Mauritanian history, whether it has, whether it's in terms of slavery, in terms of identity, marginality, Islam, Sufism, what ultimately uh, does Bilal's story tell us that forces us to rethink Mauritanian history? Yeah, that's an excellent question. Uh, I think one, you know, I think it's Bilal's story, as and I mentioned this, but I think it's it's really forces us to think of the diversity of Sufi practices in Mauritania context and West Africa, that Sufism was not only this formalized, institutionalized Sufism. There is a different form of Sufism. And this kind of Sufism actually is not new. It's just like scholars are not just paying attention to it. It's when you look at the pioneers of, 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 Sufi, uh, of Sufism, uh, the earliest you know, pioneers who are known throughout Muslim Islamic history, uh, like Hassan al-Basri and Rabi al-Adawiyah, whom I mentioned in the article as individuals were founders of the Sufi traditions, uh, were not people who established and founded Sufi orders. So Sufi orders are important and, and really influential in, in throughout Islamic history, but also specifically in West Africa. But I think we need to be to account for this diversity of Sufi practices and pay attention to it. So that's, I think, one of the major, I mean, a contribution and major, I think, a, you know, takeaway from this piece is to look at that at that practice. And, and then again, the other thing is, you know, is through the story of Bilal, we, you know, need really to recognize um, 
you know, and, and this has not, you know, we haven't done a good job, especially in the Mauritanian context and Mauritanian historian. I'm talking about here Mauritanian historian, but also scholars who study Mauritania is really looking at the Haratian communities and their history and people who contributed and shaped Mauritanian history and and it really contributed to Islamic knowledge and Islamic practices in these parts of the world, that they were not only people as laborers and people, you know, as cooks and, you know, domestic servants, but really people who were capable of thinking and capable people who were pious and Muslims. And, and again, this is, this is not, you look at the history of Islam, you have uh, black Muslims contributing from the beginning of Islam you know, contributing to the development of Islam and Islamic knowledge, but their contribution tend to be overlooked and ignored. Uh, and this is just, you know, you know, looking at this, this part of the world that is often uh, marginalized, really, and considered to be isolated, but look at individuals like Bilal who could help us understand uh, more about non-elite Muslims and their uh, contribution to Islam and Islamic knowledge. Wonderful. This is this has been an excellent conversation. Uh, I've enjoyed it. Uh, it's very rich, very complex. Uh, it's, a, it's a fantastic article that you've written here. It moves the historiography on Islam, on Sufism, on race, on slavery. It moves it forward and forces us to rethink uh, many of the assumptions that we've uh, used to shape discourses around this, uh, these categories. So thank you very much, Khalid, for coming up, coming in the, on this podcast and helping us to better understand the context, the arguments, and the contributions of this, uh, this article. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you very much. This is Moses Ochonu. It's been a pleasure again talking to Khalid Esaisa, Assistant Professor in the African Studies program at Georgetown University. I'll see you next time. Bye-bye.